Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed environmental art, learned that Hurricane Ida hit freelance New York workers the hardest, and discovered how pearls became a major link between Europe and the USA. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and new music from some of Chicago's top local artists. It's the Week in Review for September 24th, 2021. Chuck Mertz chatted with Molly A. Warsh on her book American Baroque, Pearls and the Nature of Empire. Warsh charted Spain's exploitation of Caribbean pearl fisheries to trace the genesis of its maritime empire. Legal and illegal trade in the jewel gave rise to global networks connecting the Caribbean to the pearl-producing regions of the Chesapeake and Northern Europe. Find out more on This Is Hell every Thursday and Sunday at 10. You begin by writing of pearls. They are an accommodating jewel. Their simple natural beauty presents no challenges and suggests that the woman who wears them will offer none herself. What is the message you see being sent, sent by the wearing of pearls? Why would someone in the 16th, 17th century, want to send the message that they do not present a challenge? That's a great question. I think that um, pearls continue to uh, project that image for many people who wear them. And I think that it serves the same purpose now as it did then, which is certainly wealth, although that's less of a factor now because you can get pearls much more cheaply now than you could then uh, for the most part. But I also think that they were meant to um, portray a level of docility, of just obedience, a level of comfort with the status quo. I think, and I talk about this in the book, uh, particularly when I analyze some of the images from the 16th and 17th centuries of people wearing pearls, it was more complicated than that. I think there was also an association of pearls with uh, with enslavement and with servility. And so I think people were depicted wearing pearls to try to indicate relationships of subservience. And I think, you know, I think one of the major points of the book is that really in the end, people wore pearls for all sorts of reasons. Uh, we, you know, they're, we, we can't ever know exactly why somebody's wearing a pearl. They're pretty, they're nice, they look good um, with their outfit or whatever. But I think in general, pearls were, um, they were a jewel that in the popular imagination in the 16th and 17th century, could could sometimes evoke faraway places and exotic labor regimes, but increasingly became associated with hierarchies, hierarchies of wealth, hierarchies of race, hierarchies of gender, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think any of that images, any of those understandings of pearls linger to this day when somebody decides to wear, say, a pearl necklace? No, I don't, unless you're me. <laughs> I mean, I think about those things when I wear pearls. But I think that in general, one of the top, one of the reasons that I became increasingly interested in pearls, having really not, having come to this topic, um, or rather having stayed with the topic because of my deep interest in labor and labor regimes. I really, I'm, I was not some sort of pearl fanatic. That's not why I decided to write this book. But I think in general, and my sort of reluctance to write the book at first was, oh, pearls are so boring. And people, you know, when you think about pearls, you just think of this sort of image of particularly white femininity and just sort of well-behaved women. And I, that was never a compelling idea to me. But the more that I began to look into how pearls were actually produced, where they came from, how many different kinds of people could actually get their hands on them in the early modern period, I realized it was a a very interesting topic. So now when I wear pearls, I think I know all of those stories. I think about all of those things. Um, But I think that remarkably, and this is why, I mean, not that the book is ever going to fly off the shelves because it's an academic book and and they don't do that. But my hope is that people who wear pearls who have either heard me talk about the book or read the book will realize that it's actually a more complicated jewel than it initially presents, just like people have always been... uh, extraordinarily complicated and impossible to control on a fundamental level. When we think of the wealth generated by the New World that expanded the reach and wealth of the Spanish Empire, often what is depicted, what is you know grasped in our imagination is a search for precious metals like copper, silver, and gold, and the exploitative nature of that extractive work. Did indigenous peoples also have a similar experience when it comes to pearls, which are not mined per se. Do they still have the same uh, exploitative experience as they did in the copper and silver and gold mines? Yes, they certainly do. Um, With the caveat, I mean, this is true for most natural industries in the Americas. There were indigenous traditions of harvesting pearls that existed prior to the arrival of Europeans and Africans to the Americas. Um, So those traditions were ones that 
that the earliest encounters between Europeans and indigenous peoples in the Caribbean seized upon as ways of trading um, and acquiring things that both both sides wanted. However, that very quickly evolved for a variety of complicated reasons into um, a very brutal, terrible labor regime that absolutely uh, exploited mercilessly uh, indigenous peoples and African peoples uh, as much as um, the people interested in harvesting pearls were able to do so. And as I say in the book, this was all made more complicated by the fact that unsurprisingly, the indigenous inhabitants of the area where the pearl beds um, were located, you know, off the coast of Venezuela, knew a tremendous amount about the ecology, about about the waters that they needed to dive in, about how to uh, not overfish banks. Interestingly, and this is a part of the book that remained kind of um, impossible for me to figure out, very quickly it became also the case that enslaved African divers uh, became similarly expert uh, in locating oyster banks, in knowing how to harvest pearls most successfully. So in sum, the, the very people who were enslaved and exploited were also the expert, you know, the holders of expert knowledge about how to actually get this good. And that created really interesting uh, dynamics in the pearl fisheries, but it didn't diminish their exploitive nature, which was tremendous. But they don't have that knowledge when it comes to copper and silver and gold mining. Is that one of the reasons that the empire did shift over to copper, silver, and gold mining? Because the laborer is the person who is holding the knowledge of where the mineral can be found. Well, I think, I mean, I think part of the reason that the attention shifts to um, to the mainland and to the more familiar tales of precious metal exploitation is because the Caribbean pearl beds never recover from their just sort of mind-boggling exploitation in the early 16th century. You know, they don't stop having people pay attention to them and trying to exploit them, but very quickly in historical terms, you know, within 50 years, it's clear that there's a lot more money to be made and, you know, much, much larger indigenous populations on the mainland, not to mention the growing trade in enslaved Africans. Um, all of this became a big factor in in moving the Spanish crown's attention to the mainland and away from the Caribbean. And another thing to just point out here is that the Caribbean as a region suffered, the indigenous population suffered the most dramatic population declines as a result of disease and violence in that first half of the 16th century. So it was a, it was a loss of the, the natural resources that were the oysters. It was a loss of human resources to exploit, to get them. It was a combination of factors. The Spanish crown did not know what it was doing early on. It just did not. It was absolutely helter-skelter. Helter uh, it was a big mess. It was an, a big experiment. And that, and it was full of embarrassing episodes and, you know, you know, tremendously misbehaving conquistadors who would not listen to the crown and squandered profits. So what happened is as the action moved to the mainland, the Spanish crown had learned a lot of lessons. It had refined its bureaucracy. It had tightened up the reins, basically, on how it wanted to run the show. You know, overseas empire in the 16th and 17th centuries was always a messy affair, but it became less messy uh, in some senses. I mean, this bureaucratically by the time to the mainland. So what happens? Historians and chroniclers of the time stopped emphasizing the history of the early messy period in the Caribbean. And it was much easier to sort of crow about, to feel proud about you know, uh, exploitive operations on the mainland, be they silver mines, copper mines, what have you, later plantations, when the mechanisms for exerting state control were much more firmly in place. They just weren't in place in the Caribbean when the pearl fisheries were at their heyday. And that created a lot of problems for for the crown, for propaganda purposes. Um, so that's, I think that was another big factor in shaping for many, many centuries at this point, why people are much more familiar with the story of silver and gold and later agricultural plantations than they are with this early experiment in maritime exploitation. So, um, the sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, just that the Spanish crown continues to be thought of, you know, even sort of among professional historians, although that emphasis is changing. People think Spanish empire, they think big terrestrial empire, uh, you know, land-based exploitation of human and natural resources. And that's certainly true. But part of what I'm trying to say with this book and, and with my ongoing work is that we really, really need to pay more attention to what, what the Spanish crown was learning 
at sea and along seashores, because that was also a really important realm of experimentation and knowledge building and exploitation. And this early historiography, as you were saying before, uh, this has been kind of erased, this earlier part of the Spanish Empire and pearl exploitation. That's erased from our view. Why is that, uh, you were talking about the kind of the chaotic nature of it being erased, but is it erased because of the brutality of the pearl fisheries? Because the system that came afterwards, the terrestrial system, to me would seem, I don't know, was it more brutal? Was it less brutal? Is it the brutality of it that embarrasses the Spanish historians? I mean, I think brutality is absolutely baked into the act of empire from the get-go. So I would I would be reluctant to say that one episode of exploitation is more, uh, you know, causes more suffering than any other. Uh, from the minute this this enterprise got off the ground, people have been suffering. But I, but certainly the scale of later, um, what you know, whether we're talking about silver mines or we're talking about, you know, much later down the road, sugar plantations or or many other agricultural plantations, the 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 scale of operations and the scale of um, coerced labor grows greater. But for me, and as you know, the book shows, I'm not a you know, I'm not prone to try to quantify the human experience in my approach to the past. So, I for me what happened in the Caribbean and what happened in these pearl fisheries, the suffering and the learning and the immense sort of creativity and perseverance that occurred there is just as important as what happened later. And in many ways, and this is what I argue in the book, it's perhaps even more important because it's foundational. It's this messy experiment in trying to, in grappling with what empire is going to mean, how messy it's going to be, how fundamentally uncontrollable people are, even when employing the most brutal mechanisms of trying to curtail their movement and communication. People people find ways to carve out spaces for themselves and to get things that make their life, to, to form relationships that make their life meaningful. So I think you know people forget that uh, because in many ways the crown was embarrassed. It was embarrassed by people by, by Las Casas who visited the fisheries early on and just decried the abuses you saw. There were many, many people uh, who in very public forums for the time decried just how widely pearls were circulating. There's this line that I quote in the book of, you know, hasta las negras se ponen sartas de perlas. Even the black women are wearing necklaces of pearls, somebody wrote with horror, just sort of calling attention to the fact like, whoa, the Spanish crown doesn't really know what it's doing. Like pearls are going everywhere. They have no control over this labor system. And that was a source of real embarrassment. Uh, so those accounts began to be um, edited out and accounts that gave a much cleaner portrayal of, of imperial administration that, that rendered a more orderly vision of how the Spanish crown was handling its empire began to be the ones that the crown, of course, wanted to circulate.
Jeremy Lucero spoke with Luis Feliz Leon, staff writer and organizer with Labor Notes, about the impact of Hurricane Ida on the NYC working class. Ida, which flooded subways and killed dozens living in garden apartments, was a wake-up call about the effects of climate change. Was it also a harbinger for change in how workers are treated? Labor Express airs every Sunday at 8 p.m. When I asked Luis to discuss how the workers described in his article fared, primarily delivery workers for companies like Grubhub, DoorDash, and Relay, he was very clear that it was important to see the situation in its proper context. Let me like provide some framing, because um, I think part of what inspired me to write this story is something that I find um, is a little problematic with a lot of reporting on immigrant workers in particular, low-wage workers more generally. So we, we live in a free market, you know, capitalist system where the most substantial freedom we have is to die or live. That's the wager we as workers face every day, and it is why we clock in. So when we see viral videos of immigrant gig workers braving a storm to report to work to earn a living, they are no different than other workers, despite some media accounts that hype their plight for clicks. What's different about Los Deliveristas, in this case, the delivery workers that I interviewed for this story, and other workers, is that immigrant gig workers have even fewer protections and rights on the job. But the underlying forces of domination, coercion, control are the same across workplaces. So ultimately, the dirty little secret the bosses don't want workers to recognize is how little freedom they have on the job and in society. Because instead of being divided by classifications of work, sector, race, ethnicity, documented status, language, gender, etc., they'd be united in fighting the boss and ultimately all the bosses. To the extent we have any freedom in this nation, it is a cheap in kind. One of One of choose your journey of consumption, order from Amazon, Target, or Walmart. And by the way, that unsatiable appetite for consumption that fuels the U.S. economy is laying waste to the planet, which is why we're going to get even worse storms than Ida. So the problem with so many stories of immigrants is that reporters, without a class analysis, make them exceptional or focus on their degradation and not their power to organize collectively and fight for a different world. If immigrant gig workers are exceptional, they are exceptional in the sense of the exception that proves the rule. All workers across industries and sectors labor in dictatorial environments where they must fight to wrest control from their tormentors, be they algorithms or managers. So the social system here is the key problem. It's not stingy customers who don't tip generously on a rainy day. So some of the stories coming out of this, right, were about out of this storm were about how workers didn't make uh, enough earnings that day. The problem is that workers should not have had to report to work that day, period. And the reason, and that was not only a factor at, um, you know, that we saw with immigrant gig workers, that was also happening to Amazon workers at delivery stations in New York City where they were stranded because the trucks couldn't get through. And as we know, Amazon has a just-in-time delivery system. So it's not like the warehouse is stacked. Everything is calibrated to be delivered at just the right precise time to get to a customer's doorstep. So this was happening throughout the city and affecting multiple workplaces. The one that I felt um, highlighted the extremes of, of just the control and abuse that the bosses have over workers is the, is the, is what we saw with the immigrant workers, right? Cause we, as I mentioned in my story in labor notes, you have to set your schedule beforehand. And if you don't report to work, you're penalized. You could be deactivated. So they were conscripted. They were coerced into working under these conditions. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there first for framing And then I'm happy to talk about what the day was like for workers. But it's important to also highlight that those deliveristas in particular, they have organized worker committees throughout New York City where they're trying to fight back against DoorDash, Relay, Grubhub, and all these tech companies that, you know, impose on them a system of hyper-exploitation. So these are not workers that are completely defenseless. These are workers that are organizing, and they were caught in this storm and forced because of the conditions of their labor um, 
you know, to choose whether to live or to die in this storm. And that's a, a, a choice that is, was extremely dramatized that day, but it's a choice that we all face every day when we go into work. So just, just <laughs> forgive me for the long like preamble, but I just think it's important to put the framing um, where it needs to be. Right. No, no, no. Well said. I, I'm glad you did that. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. And I do, I, I do want to, the, the, my kind of my next follow-up question after the question of, you know, what the experience of that day was like was about, um, you know, the organizing that's going on and the demands that they're making. So, um, so I want to get to that, but if, yeah, if you don't mind, I, it, just to give people a sense, you know, that weren't there in New York, didn't, didn't know exactly what the experience was like. I, I, you've talked about it quite a bit in the article. So I wanted to give you a chance to kind of give, give our listeners just a sense of what, what the workers were experiencing that day. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, most of these workers, they deliver food on scooters or e-bikes. So around 8.30 p.m., 9 p.m., that's when the, the water really started pouring across New York City. And workers were, you know, caught in, in this, like, uh, surge of, of rainwater. Um, and what happened to some of them is that their their bikes broke down. The motors uh, got filled with water and it stranded them. Some of these workers live, um, New York is a very expensive city. So most, they usually deliver in, you know, places like the Upper West Side in Manhattan. But they live in the Bronx or they live in Queens. Um, they, they live in more affordable neighborhoods. So that means that they had to take the train sometimes. If they had an e-bike. They, they may have to take, they, they would have had to take the train to get back home or, you know, use their scooter to, to get there. But the roads were closed. The subways were shut down. So some workers were stranded. Um, others called co-workers to come to their aid. So when it gets to the piece of organizing, they have like chat groups through WhatsApp um, that initially they set up because they were being assaulted on bridge crossings. So they set it, set it up as a self-defense network of sorts. But for the day of the storm, that was one way for them to communicate with coworkers to come to their aid if their uh, scooters broke down because of the rain. So it was some of the workers usually see a day like this, um, you know, as one where they could make a good, you know, make good tips. Um, but no one expected for the most part as, phone screens lit up with flood warnings that it was going to get this bad. Um, and, and ultimately for them, it was, it, it, that was the contradiction they were grappling with. Like, you know, they do recognize that they do make more when it rains because people don't want to be inconvenienced to leave their homes and get wet to pick up their food. So they have somebody else do it for them. Um, and, and then there's the reality that they, already put into their put in a schedule on the app that they were going to report to work that day. So that means that, you know, they were, they, they were making the best out of extremely, you know, coercive circumstances to earn a living. Uh, so th they were making do with the circumstances handed to them. Right. So, um, so that's what it was like that day. And, you know, some of these bikes, they can cost up to $3,000, to replace. So imagine if they made that day, let's say they made 245 bucks or something, right? Um, that, that pales in comparison to the damage, you know, because they're independent contractors. These gig companies are not responsible for the cooler bags that they strap on their backs to keep the food warm as they're making deliveries. They, the, the, the app companies are not responsible for damage to their bikes. Uh, you know, but the app companies still impose on them a schedule like any other employer would, except they don't have the responsibilities of employers to provide sick pay, to provide comp pay, uh, none of that, right? So it's, it's a really exploitative model that relies on basically cutting, like, cutting corners and ignoring labor law in order to make a profit. And that's been going on, you know, since the, since the advent of, of Uber. Like, this is the model. Size matters, size matters. Smith, Kyle, Seisman, Kowski. Just, 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 hey, I, I need them bowl cutters of mine again. Kyle, 
we've been over this. No bolt cutters until you stop using them ah. to cut the lock off my bicycle. How dare you, Jessica? I wouldn't have to cut the lock if you didn't keep locking it up. Besides, how could I have stolen your bicycle if you still have it? Because all six times I caught you and I took it back. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, God knows what would happen if you got away with it. You don't even know how to ride a bicycle. What thievery are you up to now? Jess, I am softened by that remark. If truth be known, I am trying to secure myself gainful employment. With bolt cutters? With, with what is behind this fence over here on Morgan. Feast your eyes on the rarest of floor finds. Tree saws. This is an active construction site. I, I just saw these guys pop over to Saluri's for lunch. Well, looks like it ain't that active then. Listen, just stand back and let me get to work over here. I have liberates them. Freedom is now mine. I still don't get this. It's very easy, Jess. Pulaski Savings Bank is always needing tree service, and with these tools, I can provide that service. And from that, I can parlay it into some fall-time haggerswaggle. Kyle, you're like 70 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Tree cutting is arduous work. Are you sure you're physically up for this? I got some million-dollar marketing idea, so just sit back and watch. What are you jokers doing now? Oh, Kyle's trimming trees at the bank. They're giving him 60 bucks. Is he okay? He looks a little pale. Um, I think he might be having a heart attack, actually. Mm, that's just his regular clammy sweat and deathly complexion. You jagoffs can say what you want, but my treeway system is going to change the industry. <laughs> Your what? Yeah, it's my system to gin up business. All over Bridgeport are trees that need trimming. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this sign. How about a treeway? Are you serious? Absolutely. Watch this. Hey, you over there. How about a treeway? Uh, oh, no. No, no, no. How about no. a treeway? A treeway right hey. now. Can it, trucker? <laughs> uh, what's this about? A three-way? You got it, buddy. You're the first for my treeway system. Uh, with, with you and these guys? Uh, I'm not involved here. Oh. Oh, no, Jamie. You, you've made him sad. Ah, Look how sad he is. That's not very neighborly. How are we going to get this treeway system off the ground if yous don't help at all? Um, hey, this is your bright idea. I'm pretty sure it's against my religion. How is this my this idea? This is your idea because... Jesus, they'll be at it forever. Let's get back leave. to this treeway, Kyle. What exactly is this system? I'm so glad you asked. First, the thrusting. Uh, oh. Uh, as we cut across branches... Then there's the flexing. Oh. As we trim the branches, and then the final stroke oh. is to clean up the leaves. <laughs> well, I'm in. Your place or mine. <laughs> I got no trees in my place. That would be ridiculous. How about you just give us your address, and we'll be over soon. I'll be waiting. See, Jess, how easy was that to gin up business? You want to try? Um... Hey, how about a treeway? Treeway, want a treeway with us? Come on, just join in. Wow, so crazy. I have a, a different engagement a at Let's another oh, place. So, Hannah, don't try to pawn that recorder off of me. This week on the Biden Files, the FDA knocks back Biden's plan for COVID boosters, Russia holds a sham election, Trump sues the Times but admits their reporting is accurate, Republicans say they will force the U.S. to default on its debt, treatment of Haitian migrants on the border draws outrage, and Biden's approval ratings continue to slide. These are the Biden Files. Day 241, September 17th. An FDA advisory panel has rejected Biden's plan to offer Pfizer COVID-19 booster shots for everyone 16 and older. The committee voted 16 to 2 against approving the booster shot after scrutinizing new data from Israel. The panel, however, recommended booster shots for older Americans and other high-risk groups. The FDA is expected to make a final decision on boosters by early next week. The Pentagon has admitted that an August 29th drone strike in Kabul, which killed 10 civilians, including seven children, was a tragic mistake. General Frank McKenzie, who was the head of U.S. Central Command, apologized for the error, saying the decision was made in the earnest belief that it would prevent an imminent threat to our forces and the evacuees at the airport. The car was believed to have been carrying explosives. 
The United Nations has warned that the global average temperature is on track to rise 2.7 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, and that the commitments already made by wealthy nations to curb emissions are not close to enough. The most recent commitments to curb greenhouse gas emissions from 191 countries, if implemented, would result in a 16% increase compared to 2010 levels. However, emissions need to decrease by at least 25% by 2030 to avert the worst impacts of global warming. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned, quote, the world is on a catastrophic pathway and there is a high risk of failure. Day 242, September 18th. Police and media vastly outnumbered protesters around the U.S. Capitol at a sparsely attended rally by supporters of the people who breached the building on January 6th. Only about 100 protesters showed up, some carrying the flags of the right-wing group Three Percenters over their shoulders. Hundreds of police officers had patrolled the Capitol grounds and a black eight-foot-high fence surrounded the White Dome building for about six months was reinstalled, reflecting unease about a potential repeat of January 6th. 100 National Guard troops were also on standby. The Justice for J6 rally, organized by former Trump campaign strategist Matt Brainerd, supposedly wanted to, quote, bring awareness and attention to the unjust and unethical treatment of nonviolent January 6 political prisoners. 60 people have been denied bail and remain in pretrial custody out of the more than 600 who were charged in that deadly riot. The White House has published a new economic analysis that shows the wealthiest Americans pay far less in taxes than others. The analysis suggests that the wealthiest 400 households in the country, those with a net worth ranging between $2.1 billion and $160 billion, pay an effective federal income tax rate of just 8% per year on average. Day 243, September 19th. House Democrats are combining a short-term government spending bill with the suspension of the debt limit in what appears to be an effort to both avoid a government shutdown and hang Republicans with their own intransigence. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has claimed that Republicans will not support legislation that raises the debt limit because, in his words, Democrats are exploiting this, quote, terrible yet temporary pandemic as a Trojan horse for permanent socialism. In fact, Congress has until the end of September to ratify a new spending agreement or risk a shutdown. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen previously warned that under current conditions, the department will reach its borrowing limit sometime in October, which could cause the U.S. to spiral into a recession. Despite the term debt limit, the bill actually reflects the United States' commitment to honor monies that have already been spent. The U.S. is to lift travel restrictions on foreign visitors who are fully vaccinated against the coronavirus. International travelers will now be allowed to enter the U.S. if they can show proof of vaccination before boarding the plane and if they have tested negative for the virus within three days of their flight. The Supreme Court announced it will hear arguments on December 1st on Mississippi's restrictive abortion law, which now bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That case has been blocked by lower courts because it directly violates Roe v. Wade. The justices say they want to hear arguments on whether all bans of pre-viability abortions are unconstitutional. Earlier this month, the justices allowed Texas to move forward with its near-total abortion ban. Day 244, September 20th. The U.S. moved to block the Mexican border near an isolated Texas town where thousands of Haitian refugees have crossed and set up a camp. The U.S. also began airlifting the Haitians back to Haiti as that government filed a formal protest. Haitians have been crossing from Ciudad Acuna for almost three weeks. Close to 10,000 are now living in squalid conditions under and near a bridge in the Texas border city of Del Rio. Many Haitians cited the recent devastating earthquake as well as the assassination of President Jovenel Moshe as reasons for leaving that nation. Also, many of the Haitians have not lived in Haiti for years. Instead, they have settled in Brazil and Chile. The Senate's parliamentarian has blocked a Democratic plan to use a $3.5 trillion social and climate package to provide a path to citizenship for an estimated 8 million immigrants. Elizabeth McDonough, who is the Senate parliamentarian, ruled that the proposal is, quote, by any standard, a broad new immigration policy, and that changing the law is a tremendous and enduring policy change that dwarfs its budgetary impact. Democrats are now considering whether to ignore the ruling by the parliamentarian and move ahead with the reform anyway. Immigration reform in America has been stalled for nearly two decades. The Pfizer vaccine has been shown to be safe and highly effective in young children aged 5 to 11 years, meaning it shortly could be rolled out to American school children. Children now account for more than one in five new cases in the U.S. The Delta variant has sent more children into hospitals and ICUs in the past few weeks than at any other time during the pandemic.
A Texas doctor says he has performed an abortion in defiance of a new state law that bans most abortions in that state after six weeks of pregnancy. The doctor, Alan Braid, said he performed one on September 6th for a woman, though, although still in her first trimester, was beyond the state's new legal limit. In a statement, Dr. Braid said the woman, quote, had a fundamental right to receive this care and added that the law was blatantly unconstitutional. Dr. Braid is already challenging Texas's new law in a federal lawsuit. Day 245, September 21st. Gruesome footage of horse-riding U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents using whips to chase Haitian migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border has drawn widespread outrage with the White House calling that incident horrific. The footage showed CPB agents charging migrants carrying only food and water and the clothes on their backs as they tried to scramble onto the American side of that river. Agents shouted, get out now, go back to Mexico, while trying to whip the people. Some 10,000 migrants have been living in squalid conditions in Del Rio, Texas. U.S. authorities have begun airlifting those migrants back to Haiti, which has protested the action. Justin Trudeau won re-election in Canada, but not with the parliamentary mandate he had sought. In fact, the results were a near repeat of the previous vote. The Liberal Party won 156 seats, one fewer than it acquired in 2019, while their main rivals, the Conservative Party, won 121, the exact same as before. Trudeau had gambled that a snap election could have given him a mandate. Instead, voters signaled their exhaustion with politics. Vladimir Putin's party has won another parliamentary majority following an election transparently riddled with fraud. Putin's biggest critics were barred from running. Several attempts to encourage tactical voting were removed by Google and Apple under Kremlin pressure. There were also widespread reports of ballot stuffing and forced voting. United Russia's victory means it will have more than two-thirds of the 450 seats in the country's parliament, but the result was not as sweeping as in years past, reflecting the growing dissatisfaction in that nation. A lawsuit could test the constitutionality of the nation's most restrictive abortion ban has been filed in Texas against a doctor who admitted to performing an abortion illegal under the new law. The suit was filed by a felon serving a federal sentence at home in Arkansas with no connection to the abortion at issue. He said he filed the claim because of the $10,000 he could receive if the lawsuit is successful. A second suit came from a man in Chicago who asked the state to strike down the abortion law as invalid. The doctor in question, Alan Braid, is already suing the state of Texas, claiming the law is unconstitutional under Roe. In his first address to the UN, President Joe Biden urged global cooperation through a decisive decade for our world. His calls for unity came amid tensions with allies over the U.S.'s withdrawal from Afghanistan and a major diplomatic row with the state of France over a submarine deal. The United States also announced it was doubling its climate finance pledge by 2024 and sending 500 million Pfizer vaccine doses to countries worldwide. Day 246, September 22nd. Newly unsealed court documents show that two weeks after the 2020 election, Trump's lawyers had concluded he had lost the election fairly and without incident. Despite this, they would proceed to lay out a bizarre conspiracy theory, claiming that a voting machine company had worked with an election software firm, the financier George Soros, and Venezuela to steal the presidential contest from Trump. The revelation came as that company, Dominion Voting Systems, sued Trump, his lawyers, and his campaign for defamation. They appear to have uncovered what seems to be a smoking gun. Trump's lawyers have already been sanctioned in several states for filing false claims. Trump's claims, however, have become a creed of cure for Republicans nationwide. The House has passed legislation that would keep the government funded through early December, lift the limit on federal borrowing through the end of 2022, and provide about $35 billion in emergency money for Afghan refugees and natural disaster recovery. The move sets up a collision with Senate Republicans who say they will oppose the measure. The bill is needed to avert a government shutdown when funding lapses next week and avoid a first-ever debt default when the Treasury Department reaches the limits of its borrowing authority within two weeks. Republicans have refused to allow that bill's passage, citing the fact that Democrats control all three branches of government. Johnson & Johnson said that a booster dose to its one-shot coronavirus vaccine provides a strong immune response months after people receive a first dose. Those studies' results have not yet been peer-reviewed. J&J is claiming that the booster raised its efficacy to 96%. They are now in talks with European regulators regarding using booster doses of the vaccine. Johnson & Johnson's one-shot dose was initially heralded as a breakthrough for rural and underserved populations, but the shot has been less used than Pfizer's or Moderna's. However, the J&J vaccine appears to have a longer-lasting impact. A new study showed that five months after one dose, antibody levels remain stable. Day 247, September 23rd. The Fed said they will soon slow the asset purchases they've been using to support the economy and will also raise interest rates next year. 
The moves indicate the Fed is planning to wind down the purchases which have propped up the economy for much of the last year and that the economy is starting to stabilize after nearly 18 months of pandemic chaos. The senior American diplomat overseeing Haitian policy has resigned in protest, submitting a letter to the State Department excoriating the Biden administration's, quote, inhumane, counterproductive decision to send migrants back to a country that has been racked this summer by a deadly earthquake and political turmoil in the wake of the assassination of President Jovenel Moisha. That diplomat, Daniel Foote, was appointed special envoy just weeks after Moisha was shot in his bedroom during a nighttime raid on his residence. In his resignation letter, Foote added that my recommendations have been ignored and dismissed and called the United States' Haitian policy fatally flawed. In related stories, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas vowed to complete an investigation into the treatment of Haitian immigrants at the Texas-Mexico border after videos showed mounted Border Patrol agents running down migrants and using their reins as whips. Mayorkas told the House Homeland Security Committee that an undisclosed number of agents have already been placed on administrative duty. Texas Governor Greg Abbott also sent hundreds of state-owned vehicles to the southern border to form a so-called steel wall to block migrants from crossing the border. Now nearly 15,000 Haitians have taken refuge under the border bridge in Del Rio, Texas, while trying to seek asylum. Trump filed a lawsuit accusing his niece Mary Trump, the New York Times, and three of its reporters of conspiring in an insidious plot to improperly obtain his confidential tax records and exploit their use. A lawsuit claims that the Times reporters, as part of an effort to obtain the tax records, relentlessly sought out Mrs. Trump and persuaded her to smuggle the records out of her attorney's office and turn them over to the Times. That action, according to the lawsuit, breached a confidentiality agreement that was part of the settlement of litigation involving the will of the former president's father, Fred C. Trump, who died in 1999. Trump's lawsuit, moreover, accuses the newspaper, its reporters, and Mary Trump of being, quote, motivated by a personal vendetta and their desire to gain fame, notoriety, acclaim, and a financial windfall that were further intended to advance their political agenda. Trump, of course, continues to lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him. The reporting won a Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer judges called the subsequent report an exhausted 18th-month investigation that revealed a business empire riddled with tax dodges. Notably, Trump does not in the lawsuit dispute the authenticity of the family financial records and other data that the Times based its reporting on. The COVID epidemic is now officially the deadliest in America's history. More than 675,000 people in the U.S. have died of COVID-19, surpassing the country's 1918 influenza pandemic death toll. 70% of Americans disapprove of the new Texas abortion law. 81% say they disapprove of giving a $10,000 bounty to private citizens who successfully file suits against those who perform or assist a woman with getting an abortion. These are the Biden files. Sharon Hoyer spoke with two local choreographers about how the environment changes us. In discussion with Ayako Kato and Carrie Hansen, Hoyer discusses how dance can lead to an exploration of local space and time and how we are changed by the landscapes around us. Means of Production with Sharon Hoyer airs every other Friday at 9 a.m. So uh, before we get into talking about your new production called Grass, which I want to spend a lot of time talking about because there's so much there to dig into, um, literally and figuratively digging into the grass. I don't know. Nice. Um, just uh, for those unfamiliar with the seldoms, could you just give us a little background on your company and the kind of work that you make? Sure. We... Um... We came to be in 2001, so we're just about to um, uh, celebrate our 20th anniversary. We're celebrating it in 2022, and um, I founded the company with one other choreographer, dancer, and a visual artist. And so I would say that the, the kind of the the, the multimedia uh, aspect and the and the real uh, interest in in working with visual artists is kind of built into the DNA of, of the company. And um, more recently, uh, in the past 10 years, I've been doing dance theater projects. Uh, after a, you know, a long stint doing, uh, I went through a period where I was really interested in doing site-specific work. Um, and, and I would say more abstract, sort of modern contemporary language. Uh, and I started working in a, a dance theater mode with an increasing amount of spoken word, probably because I needed 
I needed that to be able to address the subject matter that I wanted to address. Um, so I always surround myself. I'm, I'm really good at surrounding myself with smart makers and, and creators and um, grass. This, this current project is no different. We've got a playwright, Seth Boakley, and um, animator Lisa Barcy and uh, Julie Ballard is our longtime lighting designer and, and more. And it's just so it's a uh, it, the, the projects are always very collaborative and certainly with the ensemble members, the dancers, too. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really um, there's a lot of dimension to the performances that that the seldoms put together with all of those collaborators participating. Uh, it's it's dance theater for sure, but it is, you know, every bit as much about um, visuals and, and text and design and things like that. And um, and so I'm curious with this new production called Grass, um, the really about the subject matter and what inspired you. I know um, from written descriptions and press releases the title refers to two very specific types of grass that probably mm-hmm. the two that, that probably come to mind most readily for most people, which is either that kind of manicured turf grass that we see on lawns and golf courses and parks. And everywhere. everywhere. It's everywhere. Everywhere. Um, not by nature, by design, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and cannabis. Um, yeah. So, so tell me what got you interested in grass as a, as a subject? Yeah, I, um, well, I was reading a book called Lawn People um, by Paul Robbins, who is the dean of the Nelson Institute for Environment at UW-Madison. I, the, the seldoms and, and then I personally have uh, been uh, performing and teaching and um, having residencies up at UW for a long time. And um, so I came across Paul's book and uh, again, it's called Lawn People, subtitled How Grasses, Weeds and Chemicals Make Us Who We Are. Mm. And, you know, it's both an academic book, but it's also just really, it's a compelling read because Paul is a really talented and um, uh, a clever writer. And um, one one of the things that stuck with me uh, from this book is, his mention of a uh, turf grass subject that um, that a person who a, a person becomes a turf grass subject when they become sort of like um, obsessed with their lawn and that this happens to so many of us. And, and so, you know, just, just maybe eight years ago, I became a homeowner uh-huh. and I'm uh, in the near Western suburbs of Chicago and very close to Riverside and Riverside is, um, Riverside is a is a national has, it's on the National Historic Register and it's this beautiful sort of utopian and like early model of the suburbs and it was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted mm-hmm. and um, so and Paul actually mentions that suburb um, in his book and you know there's these vast stretches of of green and it's you know it's really idyllic and um, it's this interesting sort of um, uh, a place between like private property, but also public property. And, and because like those front yards are so public and my little, my, my little front yard is, is, you know, I, I'm quite aware of its appearance, mm-hmm. like more so than I would have ever thought because I lived in the city for over 20 years. And, and so again, this was my first home and I became weirdly, I was watching myself become weirdly sort of obsessed with the appearance of my lawn, like out there pulling dandelions. I admit to, to, I don't do it anymore, but I admit to using fertilizer, at, you know, and you know, stuff that really? oh, I, I whistled. Know. Oh my gosh. I just, that's right. So. Really you, I, you're, uh, you know, and just knowing like your body of work with the seldoms and your commitment to, um, uh, environmental topics and environmentalism that, that takes me by surprise, Carrie. Well, I, I know it took me by surprise too. And, but this is one of the points of Paul's research too, was that, um, the people who, who know better, like they know the harmful effects of fertilizer and pesticides and, and all of these chemicals that we uh-huh. pour into our lawns. We know the ill effects, 
and we still do it. And that's how powerful like this, this sort of, um, I don't know, the, the, the need to, part of it's related to property value, right? Mm. But, but a lot of it's related to, to being a good citizen, to being a good neighbor. And in, mm. and in that regard, lawns sort of produce good neighbors. It, it reflects on, like, it reflects on who I am as a person. I like a sense of order and a sense of pride. And so I've just been watching myself, you know, um, uh, get invested in that. And, and then, so at the same time that I was reading this book, you know, uh, the state of Illinois was getting ready to legalize cannabis um, at the top of 2020. And um, all of a sudden you started smelling weed wherever, Mm -hmm. or grass, Mm -hmm. there's all these different terms for it, Mm -hmm. Uh, wherever you went, it's potent and it seems ubiquitous and increasingly as ubiquitous, not as ubiquitous as, you know, lawns. But um, so I just thought I'm going to, as I often do, try to uh, integrate uh, two two subjects or two topics that might not seemingly go together. And um, I mean, really, the thing that, um, you know, the most obvious thing that holds these two things together is grass, right? The mm-hmm. title of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started thinking just about, too, how um, each of these each of these plants have been used to control and they've been commodified and they are indicators of morality. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we're, that, that's, that's the weave that we're trying to make in this, um, in the performance piece. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, at first blush, when I read the subject, I thought, Oh, interesting. And, and I didn't see, necessarily the connection outside of the name at first. But then as I was preparing for this and just kind of jotting some thoughts down, I was like, ah, and as a, as a child of the suburbs, like I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit and my dad is a uh, lawn obsessed. Um, that is like his chore. And the thing he loves mm-hmm. to do is my mom's a gardener and they're in battle for how much space each of them gets her to grow flowers and plants and a little bit of vegetables Mm -hmm. and him to have a perfectly manicured lawn. Um, and, um, and if they're listening, not battle, it's a, it's a loving battle, but still it's a negotiation of space for sure. But I, you know, I jotted down, um, that, that lawns are in this way, a, a very potent symbol of conformity. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and cannabis has been a longtime symbol of counterculture. That's changing right mm-hmm. now. But I was like, mm-hmm. oh no, these two things do stand in kind of a a relationship, as you were saying, like in terms of measures of morality and, and kind of a symbolic. Well, and I and I would even take it a step further, and I I hope that we might be um, making this or illustrating this point in the in the performance and particularly in the choreography and where the body lives inside of both of these issues that each has been wielded a, kind of as a weapon mm. right i mean in in really different ways but if i am walking down my block and there's a, there's an overgrown there's an overgrown you know lawn with all sorts of weeds and it's really uncared for you know in certain neighborhoods there are really strict covenants about how you are supposed to keep your grass um and this even goes back to like levitt town right the um the the totally planned you know early suburban community i think it's in jersey right um where they had very 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 you know clear rules about how your the exterior of your home and your lawn and your grass, your grass was supposed to be kept. And I think that it's also no sort of accident that that space Levittown also had covenants about who could live there. Right. Mm -hmm. It was a, it was a, a white only community. And so then in another way, and we certainly bring this up in, the performance piece, how has cannabis been wielded as a weapon against 
certain communities. And so we we go in, we look at the war on drugs, and Nancy Reagan mm. makes an appearance. Harry Anslinger, who was the he was the first director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and um, he was kind of responsible for creating this this kind of paranoia around marijuana and um and also certainly wielded against particular communities including like the 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 jazz community um which is uh the early jazz community like in the 30s and 40s was you know largely african-american and Mm -hmm. so you know they're tied up in both of these things are issues of conformity and exclusion and um and certainly certainly judgment and uh you know even even worse like incarceration download complete now playing eureka cast now inspire curiosity imagine science and what many people don't realize is that there's actually a sort of a secret menu when it comes to uh, to the pharmacist. Just some tricks that you can use to uh, to really get the biggest bang for your buck, the best opportunity to really personalize your pharmacy experience. Well, you know, and that's the uh, that's the uh, the um, the the beautiful thing about. Uh, the pharmacist is that the pharmacist is so much wiser in a lot of cases and has such more hands-on experience with those suffering from diseases and diseases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a doctor, you know, sees you once or twice and then gives you a prescription, but you're going to be coming back to that pharmacist again and again and again. Yeah. The so- pharmacist is the things your kid's going to remember. They're not going to remember that doctor. They're going to remember the good pharmacist that gave them that that fun bag um, with that, with that nice little, uh, nice little bottle inside. Right. So, for the first thing that we can do, if you can look at this as a sort of the secret menu, is uh, when you can, you want to try and get fresh medicine. You want the freshest possible medicine right. in many cases. And so, one trick, one one health hack you can do is if you're getting capsules, for example, tell them you're allergic to glycerin, so they have to make them fresh. Make them fresh. You know, sometimes when you show up to the pharmacist, you're like, you know, you show up five minutes after your doctor's appointment, and they already have that thing basically ready. They just have to throw it in the bag. Um, say you want them to spend a little bit of time on it. Uh, you want you want them to make it fresh, and that's a great way to do it. Right. Um, alternatively, and this is another way to th- uh, the the other option yeah. is the other side of this coin. See if you can get some day-old medicine, even if it's past its expiration date, mm-hmm. medicine will tend to be okay. Yeah. Um, and it's really just a matter of getting there at the right time, showing up at the pharmacy right before they close, because yeah. they're going to be throwing that out anyway. Yeah. You might as well go in and ask, hey, excuse me, could, could, you, could you help me out a little bit? And they may tell you no, they may tell you to leave, but if you press them, like any customer service uh, industry, right. they will provide you what you want the customer is always right they're i mean they're gonna they're gonna want to throw those away you know they they're they're gonna throw them away anyway they're not gonna want to see that they're gonna want to think they're they're thinking themselves like oh that's a waste of all this medicine they kind of want you to have it and and on a similar sort of note um one of the biggest scams in the healthcare industry is the flu shot not because it doesn't work not because it's not effective at what it does. It's just that every year they put out a new flu vaccine mm-hmm. as if it isn't just the same one as last year. Oh, boy. You ask any nurse and they will tell you that they are just simply changing the labels each year. Mm-hmm. They just change the labels. They change the packaging. So don't be afraid to ask for last year's flu vaccine. Right. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>